Good morning and welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are joining us online or with us in person, or even watching this at some later date, we are excited to worship with you this morning. If you are part of our Dayspring family, welcome home. If you are new to Dayspring, we want you to feel like you've come home as well. No matter where you're watching from, we are glad you're here with us. At Dayspring, we believe that nothing is more important than your spiritual growth. We are committed to helping you thrive no matter where you are in your spiritual journey. Perhaps you're just exploring, or maybe you walked away and are reconsidering. Maybe you don't know why you're here this morning. That's okay. Bring your questions and your doubts. You are welcome here. And we would love nothing more than to walk with you. If you have any questions or want to learn more about us as a church, please explore our website at dsf.church. I'm Chris Voigt, lead pastor at Dayspring. I'd love to connect with you if you have questions about today's message or about the next step in your spiritual journey. If you want more information about Dayspring and getting connected into our community, I'd be glad to help you do that as well. For today's service, you can find study questions in the resources section of our website. And now, let's join our service already in progress. Well, it was the mid-1800s. A crowd had gathered to watch Jean-Francois Gravelet, also known as Charles Blondin, but even more famously as the Great Blondin. Uh, the Great Blondin was the world's most famous tightrope walker at the time, and he had set his sights on crossing the raging Niagara Falls. His life was on the line. Well, on the rope, literally. In fact, a hemp rope just two inches in diameter and 1,300 feet long would be the only thing keeping him from falling to his death. As a side note, in history, not everyone has successfully made their way across the river. Just two weeks before this moment, more than 25,000 people had traveled to both the U.S. and Canadian sides of the fall to, to watch the great Blondin attempt this daring feat for the first time, after which he had promised to do it again and again, making each attempt more daring. On this mid-July day, even President Millard Fillmore had come to watch him perform. As reported on PurposeFocusCommitment.com, Blondin, always the showman, called out to the crowd, I am the great Blondin! Who believes I can cross over Niagara Falls on this tightrope? And the, the excited crowd cheered him on and called out, We believe, Blondin! We believe! And next, Blondin pulled a handkerchief from his back pocket, and he tied it around his head, and he called out, I am the great Blondin! Who believes I can cross over Niagara Falls on this tightrope while blindfolded? And the crowd, even more amped up than before, called out, We believe, Blondin! We believe! And then, Blondin whisked away a sheet and revealed a wheelbarrow standing behind him. 
And he called out once more to the ecstatic crowd, I am the great Blondin. Who believes I can cross over Niagara Falls on this tightrope, blindfolded while pushing this wheelbarrow? And the crowd was practically roaring now, we believe, Blondin, we believe. And finally, Blondin summoned the crowd to silence and spoke once more, I am the great Blondin. Now, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> and no one made a sound. Now, that is one way to walk a literal tightrope. Today, you are getting in the wheelbarrow, and we are going to walk a metaphorical tightrope as we talk about our next essential theological belief, salvation. But before we get to that, let's make sure that everyone is up to speed. We never want to leave anyone behind. Our lives are built on uh, the foundation of what we believe. What we believe for good or bad, true or false, informs the way we think and act, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. At, about, at the first of the year, I talked about one of the subconscious beliefs that warped my understanding of God for many years. Uh, my life experiences as a kid changed my mental and emotional wiring, leaving me with the belief that love was earned. In fact, I was only lovable if I earned your love. So I became a jack-of-all-trades, dabbling in just about everything because I was trying to solve problems that other people had, making me worthy of their love. That's how I learned to fix computer problems, do graphic design, bookkeeping, video editing, and on and on. And while many of those things have made, certainly made me a more well-rounded person uh, than many people, that belief worked its way into my spiritual journey as well. I believed I had to earn God's love. And every time I failed, every time I sinned, I had to start again. I, I mean, I knew that God so loved the world in the macro sense, but when it came to really loving me as me, that was another thing entirely. And it took too long to fix. What we believe impacts everything we think and do. What we believe about money, what we believe about time, what we believe about family, work, you name it. And when it comes to what we believe spiritually, it better be true. Anything less can leave us in bondage instead of freedom. Anything less could find us becoming something other than the image of Jesus, even with the best of intentions. Anything less could find us worshiping a false god. On the other hand, a correct understanding of the authority of the Bible can act as a catalyst in our spiritual growth. Understanding what the Bible teaches about a personal God helps us grow, and understanding salvation by grace can do the same. Now, if you're just joining us today, this is week six in the series. We've already covered quite a bit of ground, which you'll find on our website if you want to explore what we believe about the Bible, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and humanity. And speaking of humanity, that's where we left off last week. With Cap's help, we looked at the truth that though we were created by God in His image, we then rejected His perfect plan, opting for our own wisdom and understanding, aligning our lives with the enemy of creation, the serpent, also known as Satan. 
And in the process, putting us on a train to an eternity in hell, separated from God. I think the absence of God will be the worst part of hell for those who choose not to get off the train. Even the worst sinner here on earth is the recipient of the general presence and grace of God, found in the beauty of creation, the cry of a newborn baby, the hope of spring, a breath of fresh air, a heart that beats mysteriously an average of 2.5 billion times before giving out. God is in every act of love, every act of kindness. Whatever else it will be, the absence of God will be the worst part of hell. And our choice to live by our own wisdom and understanding puts us on the train to, with hell as the destination. Every man, woman, and child is on that train just by virtue of being born. And we know that we deserve to be on that train. Contrary to what Satan would have everyone believe, God doesn't send anyone to hell. We willingly choose it ourselves. God doesn't send people to hell. He rescues people from hell. Because obviously this was never a surprise to God. He knew before Adam drew his first breath that we would choose poorly. But we are so deeply loved in spite of our sin that he preloaded creation with a daring rescue, a way to escape a runaway train. Codename, Salvation. Which brings us back to our tightrope. Scholars have debated and argued and fought for centuries about what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty and man's free will to choose. On the one hand, God is clearly sovereign and in control. Job acknowledged that God could do all things and that no purpose of his could be thwarted. Solomon, the wisest king of Israel, wrote proverbs that say, we make plans, but God determines our steps. And we can throw the dice, but God determines how they fall. Uh, Even God himself tells us through the prophet Isaiah, I create the light and make the darkness. I send good times and bad times. I, the Lord, am the one who does these things. God is clearly sovereign over all, and his plans and purposes will always prevail. At the same time, we have the free will to choose or not choose God. In Deuteronomy, after laying out the benefits of following God's law and the curses or results of rejecting it, God, through Moses, says, now I've laid it out for you. Now you choose which way you want to live. Ezekiel 18 speaks to that as well. Uh, Even in the New Testament, the call to repent presumes that one has the choice to repent or not. So God is sovereign, and he created people with the freedom to choose. The Bible is clear on both points. And then we read verses like these in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. 
And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Now, can you see the tension? God knew in advance. God chose. God called. And yet, we choose or don't choose. The Apostle Paul is really an expert when it comes to this tension. Romans unpacks it in several places, but we also see it in Ephesians. Uh, But even John talks about this in Revelation. The churchy words for this whole tension are predestination and election. Predestination and election. Predestination is God's sovereign determination over all that happens, but in this case specifically, over a person's eternal destiny. God, predestination says that God has predetermined our eternal destination. Election centers on who will be saved, who God predetermined would receive eternal life before setting time in motion, the chosen. When it comes to election, for our purposes here, there are two views, conditional election and unconditional election. Those who believe in conditional election believe that our election or predestination is determined by how we choose to believe. I choose to believe in Jesus, making me elect. The opposite is then also true. The bottom line is I choose to become elect by my free will, and God knew what my choice would be since he is omniscient or all-knowing before creation, making me one of the called. Unconditional election, on the other hand, says that God chooses apart from my choice. In his sovereignty, he just decided ahead of time who got to be rescued from the runaway train and who didn't. And we don't know why he makes that choice. You can see this possibility in the next chapter in Romans, in chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes, but before they were born, now that's Jacob and Esau. Uh, Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, had a son named Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, and by human standards, should have been the one who carried the torch. In this case, the one whose line God's covenant through Abraham, with Abraham, flowed through. But in the great turnaround, God chose Jacob instead. So, before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she, that's Rebecca, their mom, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. He continues in verse 14, are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose uh, choose it nor work for it. Now, books have been written defending both sides of the argument. I'm just giving you an overview today. But it does beg the question, which view is correct? Does God choose me or do I choose him? And here's the answer. Yes. 
For God, for this is how God loved the whole world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who chooses to believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is part of the great mystery of our holy God. In his great love for every single person through all of history, every single person has the opportunity to freely choose to believe, and God has already chosen those who will, period. We will walk this tightrope until we reach eternity. Salvation is a holy mystery. And either way, it should leave us with the understanding that salvation is a miraculous gift of God. We don't deserve to get off the train. We know that. Even the best of us could never stand in the presence of our holy God apart from Jesus. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. We can only receive it. Uh, Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. I didn't deserve it at the age of seven when I first believed. And even having spent the last 45 years in the pursuit of spiritual maturity, I still don't deserve it. I am still not good enough. I can still only receive the gift. Only through Jesus can I stand before our holy God, both now and in eternity. In his letter to the Colossian church, the apostle Paul puts it this way in chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. This, that is salvation or peace with God, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Christ's death reconciled us to God. It is a miraculous gift. And that brings us to our next point. If, uh, if we want salvation, we must repent and believe. Jesus himself gave us the requirements for receiving the gift of salvation. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus says, later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. And Jesus says, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now, to repent is to rethink to reconsider where your life choices have brought you to this point and to turn away from the choices that don't please God, to reorient your life toward God. And as we've already covered, we were born in sin. Apart from God, we might be good people, but good will never be good enough to get us into God's good graces. We need perfect for that, which is the good news we need to believe. Jesus is the perfect Jesus died taking the penalty of our sin, and when we repent and believe in him, we receive the free gift of right standing before God. And as we'll see in a few minutes, it gets even better than that. But really, receiving salvation is that simple. The first step is that simple. Repent and believe. Now, if you've hang around church at all, you've probably heard of the sinner's prayer. 
The sinner's prayer is just the cry of a repentant heart believing in Jesus. The actual words don't matter. There isn't a correct mantra that you have to pray. In Romans chapter 10, Paul said it this way, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's why I say the words don't matter. Paul doesn't tell us that our language matters. It's not about what we say, it's about the heart. It's always the heart that matters from God's perspective. For those of you who are already Christ followers, take note. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, I wouldn't know how to lead someone else to Christ. Every Christ follower can describe that we're all sinners in need of grace. Every Christ follower can tell someone that Jesus is the answer. Don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. Just help someone cry out to God. It takes both repentance and belief, which are both heart issues, not language issues. So it doesn't matter what you say, it's what's going on in your heart. Repentance alone is just brokenness without hope. Belief alone is just knowledge without response. It doesn't save. The Bible says that even demons believe in Jesus, but we're not going to be worshiping with them forever because they're missing repentance. And it is faith that pulls both repentance and belief together. It doesn't take a lot of faith. Just a little mustard seed is fine. But faith that Jesus is enough. That's the starting place. So while we're here, let's look at the next point. Uh, We are justified through Jesus alone. We're justified through Jesus alone. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. Most of you already believe this. But remember that depending on your level of spiritual maturity, you should be able to not just know this truth, but explain and support it with Scripture. We're trying to help give you some language that you can use to do just that. If you haven't figured it out yet, Romans is a fantastic resource on the subject of salvation. So let's look at Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. God, the one who gets to decide how people can be reconciled to him, presented Jesus. He has made no other way. In John 14, 6, in response to Thomas's question, we read that Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, that's a pretty bold claim. There's only one way. And if you're here today or you're watching online and you're just checking out the claims of Jesus or even skeptical about the claims of Jesus, here are a few things that might help you understand the difference between following Christ and every other religion in the world. And then we'll see if this claim of a single pathway oddly makes sense. First, Christianity is the only religion in the world in which mankind is made in the image of God as the pinnacle of creation, not an afterthought. Made for relationship with God, not to serve the gods. Secondly, Christianity is the only religion in the world in which God has suffered for his people, even though they didn't deserve it. All that to restore that broken relationship. 
In every other religion, the God or gods stand aloof, untouched by the suffering of the people. And then third, true Christianity is the only religion in the world in which God gives salvation away as a free gift. Every other religion in the world requires that you do something, that you do good works to get your salvation. And you never know if you've done enough until it's too late. Now, I say true Christianity because there are some sects and offshoots of Christianity, religions that claim to be Christian, but have added back into the process that you have to do good works to get to heaven or the highest level of heaven. Some of them believe in levels of heaven. If you ever wonder about whether a church represents true Christianity, ask these two good questions. What do I have to do to get into heaven? And how does God respond when I fail or when I sin? If you have to do good works to be saved or to, to stay in God's good graces, then it isn't true Christianity. We do good works not to be saved, but because we're already saved. And Jesus always gives us right standing with God, no matter what we've done or will do. Our future brokenness has already been covered. So before you bristle at the thought that Jesus is the only way to be justified before God, consider that you're welcome to try it any of those other ways. And if you've been relying on your own good deeds, as we've covered, that won't work either. So you are already on the train to an eternity apart with God, apart from God. Jesus made the way to get off the train. If you were on a runaway train in some action movie and Bruce Willis showed up and told you that the only way off was to jump on his back, you'd do it in a heartbeat. You wouldn't grumble about the unfairness of not having another way. If you think it through logically, it makes sense. We can't get there on our own, and every other religion, no matter how they pretty it up, has you getting there on your own merits. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. We need a lifeline, and your spirit tells you that it's true. Now let's continue with Romans 3. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. Now somehow... Uh, even though Jesus is the only way, uh, those who lived before Jesus, even cultures that have never heard the name of Jesus, every person through all of history can be included in God's salvation. And God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Now, the, the grace of God offered through Jesus, no other way, justifies us before a holy God. Now, as fantastic as that alone would be, there is so much more. What we step into is a personal relationship with the God of the universe. We aren't just accepted. We are embraced. 
which is a defining characteristic of Christianity. The only religion in the world where God isn't some aloof being. And our acceptance isn't just a provisional acceptance in the hope that our future selves will finally be worth saving. We aren't even servants, though we serve. At the moment we repent and believe, we become heirs to the kingdom. We are adopted as sons and daughters. We become royalty. Adoption is God's design. Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 4. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent a son born of a woman subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. I've had the privilege of being in the courtroom at a couple of adoption ceremonies, and they are great moments. The adoptive families are bound to the adoptee by the judge. The adoptee is granted all of the rights and responsibilities of a natural-born child. We have been adopted by the God of the universe with all of the rights and responsibilities that come with membership in that family. And while it is true that some of the rights and responsibilities will come in eternity, we don't have to wait for eternity for all of them. The Holy Spirit is given to us as the seal of that promise, proof of our standing in the family. He empowers our spiritual journey now. We have a personal relationship with God now. We have blessing now. And we do have responsibility now, which is also a blessing. Nothing compares to the experience of contributing to something eternal that you know blesses God. Now, I should probably mention another tightrope of theology that scholars have been arguing about for centuries. It's the tightrope of what we call eternal security or the assurance of our salvation. Can you lose your salvation? Uh, By the way, the theology of eternal security is not considered to be essential theology. Lots of great Christian men and women disagree about eternal security, but still remain in fellowship together. Uh, Even here at Dayspring, we have differing beliefs. But as a church, we do believe in eternal security. We believe that once you are saved, you are always saved. You can't lose your salvation. While there are some passages, such as Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, that speak of people who appear to be saved but falter and fall away from the faith, and Hebrews chapter 6, which talks about those who were once enlightened and fell away, John 10, 28 and 29 tells us that believers cannot be snatched out or taken by force out of God's hand. And Ephesians chapter 4.30 says that believers are sealed for the day of redemption. 
In Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul tells us that nothing, catch that, nothing, not me, myself, or I, Satan, or anyone, or anything else, nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Like, if we didn't do anything to earn our salvation in the first place, then we can't do anything to keep it either. It, it, or it becomes works, salvation by works. Now, with that said, James tells us that faith without works is dead, meaning that if you have truly given your life to Christ, then the fruit of the Spirit will manifest itself in the way you live. And when you don't see the fruit over extended periods of time or even ever, was the faith ever real? The tension is that there are clearly some people who have claimed to follow Christ and then their lives don't prove it out. So are they really saved? Ultimately, only God knows. And since he's the only judge, I think we can leave it in his hands while we try to love them back to life in Christ. But let's be clear. Works are never the method of our salvation, just the fruit of our salvation. Ultimately, the fruit is that we become more like Jesus. And the more we become like Jesus, the more we step into all that God desires for us, the more that that, the, more the fruit will be obvious. Which also illustrates our last point, becoming more like Jesus is a process. Now, I won't talk much about this point. We've, we already talk about it quite a bit already. But positionally, when we repent and believe, we have an immediate standing with God. We are immediately set apart from sin for God's purposes. We can never be more forgiven or less forgiven, never more loved or less loved. We stand totally clean before God forever. When he looks at us through the eyes of Jesus, we have already been made perfect. But clearly, we are not like Christ yet. We just begin the journey of becoming like Christ. In the church, we call that journey sanctification. With the Holy Spirit's help, we continually set aside the values of this world and replace them with the values of heaven. It is a lifelong process that won't be perfected until we cross the finish line and receive our glorified bodies. The promise is, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Now, as we close this morning, we have two types of people watching or in the room. First, those of you who have already repented and believed and dedicated your lives to becoming like Christ, press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God is calling you heavenward. Press on. Become like Jesus with every fiber of your being. The world needs to see you successfully living out your faith in humility, with grace and love. And when you fail, and you will fail, start again. Press on toward the prize. The second type of people watching are those of you who have been standing on the sidelines, checking Jesus out, the skeptics. And maybe you've heard the call of the Spirit in your heart today. Repent and believe. Call on the name of the Lord right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you made a way for us to get off of the train. 
thank you that you made a way that is so filled with your love for us and so simple that any of us could step into that. And Father, right now, we believe in faith that there are people in this room, people watching, who haven't yet taken the step to receive the free gift. And this morning we invite you just to repent and believe that Jesus is enough. All you have to do is say, yes, Lord. That's what I believe. That's the first step. It gets a little more challenging from there, but that's the first step. And if you've made that decision today, I, I want to invite you to just use the communication card to tell us that you've made that decision today because you weren't designed to take this journey alone. You were designed to do this journey in community, and we want to be a part of your journey. Father, however it works, however the tightrope really works, thank you that you have called us and chosen us by name. Thank you for the precious gift of Jesus. However that works, we pray in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us in worship today. Whether you are part of our Dayspring family or just joined us for the first time, we'd love to walk with you on your spiritual journey. Feel free to drop us an email if you have questions or want more information. For those of you who choose to invest financially at Dayspring, thank you for your generosity and commitment to helping others grow. Every gift, large or small, matters, and God never ceases to surprise us with what He is able to do because of your commitment to following Him in every part of your life. If you're our guest today, please know that we consider your time a gift to us and this service our gift to you. We don't expect you to contribute financially. For those of you who would like to partner financially, there are three easy ways for you to give. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail one of those old-fashioned checks to us. You would also bless us if you would subscribe, share, and like our live stream wherever you watch it. The social media algorithms use those likes to elevate our social media presence, which means more people hear about the ways Jesus is the answer to all of life's problems. Until next week, may the grace of God bless every aspect of your life.